0: The Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello, and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And I've been doing that for ooh, a good couple of years now. But this is a particularly special episode because it's the last one recorded and published while we are still in the EU. Uh, that may be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view. So on such an auspicious occasion, we turn to Anand Menon, director of the UK and a Changing Europe, to appear on the podcast. He Recently, Le Monde. Newspaper in France described him as the Sphinx do Brexit. I don't really know what that means because you know the Sphinx set riddles rather than answered questions. But it sounds good, doesn't it? He is the Sphinx of Brexit, and he was on this podcast. And we were joined by Will Straw. He, of course, was the executive director of Britain Stronger in Europe, the Remain campaign during the Brexit referendum, and he spoke to us about. Uh, what that was like, the causes of Brexit, why the campaign, from his point of view, lost. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff. Lots of stuff you may not have heard before in here. But I started by asking him, what are his plans for Brexit Day, January the 31st?
1: I'm in Rwanda for one of the charities I work for, uh, and I'll be um, be flying back at some point that day.
0: What time do you land?
1: Uh, I actually land in the morning, so uh, I'll still be around for the... because it's, you know, it's in the evening, isn't it? The yeah. Actual, yeah. yeah. Moment, mid- the actual official moment. Midnight clock. in Brussels. Uh, and it, uh,
0: even that is strangely symbolic, isn't it? We yeah. couldn't even make it midnight. Exactly,
1: here.
0: I mean, how do you expect to feel that day? Because it is going to be, obviously, given you, you led the, the Remain campaign, you're bound to think about it.
1: Well, I mean, since I'll have been in the cheap seats on a a 10-hour flight um, overnight, I'm actually tired. I might even be in bed before uh, 11pm. But no, I mean, seriously, I mean, I I will feel a sense of resignation. Um, I think the um, honest truth is that the hope died on early hours of December the 13th when the general election results became clear. Um, You know, you knew at that stage, I think, that um, there was was no uh, avoiding this or postponing it. Um, and I'd, I'd been involved in the, in the people's vote campaign actually involved um, after the referendum in first of all shaping open Britain and then the people's vote campaign uh, and um, you know proud of what that movement was able to do in terms of changing the terms of debate uh, until um, Roland Rudd uh, skewered it uh, in the autumn but you know it, I think it, it is clear now what's going to happen it is the um, it, it is what the democratic outcome of the general election decided, and I think, you know, it's incumbent uh, on everyone um, to um, certainly carry on with the important debates about what happens next with the trade deals, uh, but to but to accept that um, that at least for now, um, the question of whether we're a member of the EU uh, has been decided. Do you have any close us friends who are leavers? some yes uh yeah i mean i've got um you know i've got uh, a strong reason in lancashire and there was obviously a much greater mm-hmm. mix of opinion there than there was in london um but you know i've got some um, you know uh friends who for whatever reason voted leave and you know i've, I've talked to them about it I, th- I think some people you know try and avoid that conversation actually for me it's really important to have it and to understand people they are coming from um and uh I mean, what you know, it, the the arguments are obviously familiar because it, it was a year of my life, you know, running the campaign, going on TV and making those arguments. But actually, because um, you know, I'd, I'd stood in East Lancashire for the Labour Party in the 2015 election in a Conservative seat, and the, the, the arguments about. Immigration, about left behind towns, about the decline kind of high streets—you um, know—all these things that we know contributed to the Leave vote were very real. I mean, the, you know, it wasn't uh, that Brexit suddenly blew these issues out there; they were there already. They were uh, very much a, a, a cause rather than a symptom of Brexit. So,
2: are you one of those people that hopes Boris Johnson succeeds? Or are you one of those tribal people who hopes he fails, even if he wants to do something that you think is the right thing to do?
1: I'm a patriot. I want the best for Britain. You know, I want Britain to be a thriving economy and country, proud of what it does on the world stage. I'm sceptical about whether he has a plan uh, for delivering a trade deal by the end of this year uh, with the EU, and whether he's you know remotely capable, or his government remotely capable of um, you know sort of dealing with the contradictions of our position. In relation to the United States, uh, but I mean, yes, obviously, I, you know, I, I don't want us to have an economic hit. I don't want us to lose our status. I meant the more the sort of
2: levelling up agenda. Not we'll get we'll get onto the negotiations mm, yeah. I mentioned, but I meant more you know this rather strange for a Conservative government agenda to see the country levelled up to invest in those. Definitely, all... I mean
1: this is, this is something that um, uh, you know I, I think Boris Johnson has come to rather belatedly. You know the uh, Labour Party, um, you know perhaps not in its kind of central articulation of what it wants to do in government, but in the 2015 manifesto, 2017 manifesto, 2019 manifesto, there have been you know lots and lots of sensible ideas about rebalancing, about devolving powers, about bringing uh, things like bus routes and um, you know local economic partnerships back into sort of local control rather than all being dictated. By Whitehall. You know, these are all really positive steps that it feels to me like the government have um, you know, only belatedly realised are really important. To this one,
2: of the, one of the real paradoxes of the debate we've had about Brexit is we've got to the point now where everyone rather casually thinks the left behind did Brexit. They were a relatively yeah. small proportion mm-hmm. of the Brexit. I mean, this is like, yeah. you know, left behind voters are a relatively small proportion of the Brexit vote and of the Tory vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's worth bearing that in mind because one of the interesting questions for the next three years is, what do the people who made up the bulk of those two electorates think of the direction of travel? If Boris Johnson focuses on,
1: and that you know that's what I mean when I say that this, uh, if they are serious about these issues, serious about actually addressing them, then they're going to be taking a step which reverses, uh, you know, forty years of Thatcherite ideology, which has underpinned uh, the Conservative Party's uh, you know, approach to government.
0: Uh, I mean we'll look to the future but let's look to the very immediate future which is 11 o'clock on Brexit day does Big Ben bong or not is this uh, a silly load of old nonsense argument being it, uh, here we go, Right, Anna thinks it says it is before I've even finished the <laughs> <laughs> Palpably is is it or does it speak to a wider issue around uh, reuniting the country it definitely doesn't reunite the country. Right, OK, well, exactly. Uh, okay. It
1: definitely doesn't do that. Look, I mean, I understand why for, you know, a significant proportion of the country who voted for leave and have been waiting for this moment uh, for nearly four years since the referendum happened, that this will be a moment of celebration. I understand that. Uh, but if what you're seeking to do, uh, and it's you know, one of the things that Boris Johnson has talked about, um, is to try and bring the country back together, then this totally uh, divides... The country, and I think is also, uh, you know, a, a bit of an irrelevant gesture uh, as well.
0: It does it, or is it actually a way of saying, okay, it's over? You know, leave one, we are bonging Big Ben, suck it up, remainers. You know, we've, well, there you go. we You won the did, referendum, just... we run won, won the election, so. Well, then just... it's
2: triumphalism, yeah. not reconciliation. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you that's know, not even the point, is it? The point is, whenever does Big Ben. Well, I, yeah, But this is my life.
0: point. It's not about Big Ben, is it? This is the thing. It's about the well, no, I, think that it's, that I think people who are happy should have a party. Yeah.
1: No, I, uh, what I, I, about. Um, I agree, agree with that, but I think if the question is how do we bring the country back together, yeah. then this is the wrong answer. This is not something that I think the Prime Minister should have got behind. Fine if Marc Francois and whichever other triumphalist Brexiteers want to build a campaign on it, want to crowdfund to raise this money, get on with it, that's fine. You know, you, you, you've, This is your moment. Uh, but if the Prime Minister's objective is to try and bring the country back together, to try and solve some of the things that led to Brexit, to try and help Remainers to, um, to, to heal at a point where they're feeling you know, pretty angry and also nervous about the future. I don't think that's the way to do it. And there are other things that you know, he, he could do that would, um, would help I mean, for me, it's the
2: that. mirror image of the argument you heard from the other side, which is we need to stop Brexit and reunite the country. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you might find that the one gets in the way of the other. Yeah.
1: Uh, Which, by the way, is why I always felt that a um, confirmatory referendum um, was something that could help resolve the issue because it wasn't the sort of Lib Dem, let's just repeal Article 50 and, and you know, stop this madness. It was an approach that said at the moment we're in total logjam uh, and so it's got to go back to the people, so that they can make a final decision on um, which way we go. Now, obviously, the general election intervenes, and that's become irrelevant. But that's why, I, you know, for myself, and I think for many others, um, that idea of "quotes people's votes" was was a way of trying to resolve. So you've got to
2: explain to me how another referendum ends up with us feeling and being less divided, because as far as I can see, the lesson we learn from referendums, whether it's the Scottish one or the Brexit one, is. They divide us profoundly, deeply,
1: angrily. Well, we're not. I mean, I don't think we're any less divided because of the general election than we were the day no, before. No, but
2: um, we have general elections routinely and regularly. But the argument that somehow a referendum would help to heal strikes me as, at best, a bit counterintuitive.
1: To resolve, not necessarily to heal.
0: OK. Um, how, how do we heal then? Because that surely has to be something... Maybe it's just me with my wishy-washy liberal ways, but it feels like that would be a good idea to bring the country back together somehow. Is it possible? And if so, how?
1: Well, I think there are some um, steps that are about um, what we do with some of the sort of um, frayed... frayed sort of um, edges that need, need sort of um, tying up. Uh, and then there are some more symbolic things. So some of the sort of frayed edges, things like what do we do for the left behind communities? I mean, you know, is there now some kind of consensus that can be built on some of these steps that will um, help um, rejuvenate and, um, and regenerate uh, some of these you know, towns in the peripheries of larger cities? Um, you know, what can we do so that... But let me um, just stop you yeah.
2: there, maybe to be careful about it. I mean, again, there are plenty of poor places in cities.
1: I've, I totally agree with that uh, Look, I mean I'm this not, is the diff- yeah. this is
2: the difficult when we start saying north south town cities yeah. is we forget the fact that actually there's quite a lot of poverty in southern cities yeah yeah. Uh, no, totally can... right,
1: um but I think some of these steps help in both those areas, but yeah um so you, you've got things like you know we need to sort out our further education system, yeah. you know, we need to make sure that um, there are vocational routes as well as academic routes. Uh, for young people, as they have in Germany and, and Scandinavia, um, you know, but we also need to make sure, um, you know, for those towns that there are good transport links that take them uh, into the major cities. Um, you know, we need to make sure there's proper support for our education system. We need to make sure that we properly fund childcare around the country. So th- th- these steps, um, in most instances, will help deprive communities everywhere. Um, I think there's a- another side to this, though, which is that you know um, we we have to. So if that was a cause of Brexit, one of the consequences of Brexit has been a rise in hate crime, mm-hmm. uh, which has also divided society. So, you know, what more can we do to um, to try and uh, put an end to this awful? On the one hand, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, the rise of racism more generally. You know, we, we see it very visibly now at football matches. Um, you know what can we do to show that there is a zero tolerance approach to racism, uh, and uh, and to um, within you know organisations and institutions like the Labour Party and Conservative Party, but also in society more generally, you know, try and put an end to this because I think they are you know in a sense two sides of the of the same of the same coin.
2: Equally though, I'd say you know for all the talk of healing that we hear nowadays. Well, anger and emotion in politics are good things, if kept within acceptable limits. And but you'd call you, racism obviously no, no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not no, a great fan yeah, of racism. Yeah, yeah. No, no and, <laughs> and violence isn't and abuse yeah, isn't, yeah. but having a bit of passion in politics is something I'm all in favour of. Because remember, one of the things that left people feeling a bit cold after the first decade of this century was what they saw as politics becoming sort of a technocracy that it was soulless, that there was no ideological conflict. It was all about sort of, you know, hovering around the same ideological space with technical fixes for this or that. And the, the contestation had gone out of politics. So we should, we should be careful. The contestation is good. And, of course, one of the things that's happened since the referendum is that participation and interest in politics have gone up. Mm. Uh, and they're not entirely unrelated, I
1: don't think. There's plenty of contest though, isn't there? I mean, you oh, know, yeah, if you look absolutely. at you know, issues like how do you deal with climate change or you know, there, there, there are some people arguing that actually we just have to deal with the consequence of climate change. It's too expensive to try and reverse that. I mean, I strongly disagree with that, but that is a major debate that yeah. we're going to have as a country over the next 10 years and where there's no consensus. So there's there's plenty of uh, of, of conflict and contest in yeah. British politics. I suppose what interests me uh, is how we can um, start to understand some of the causes and consequences of Brexit where we can build a consensus. Yeah. I
2: mean, my, my, my gripe is about
1: aspiring to
2: return to an era of politics as managerialism. Right. Um, totally. Uh, right. that.
0: Hang on, right, as ever. Yeah, You know, I'll go up against the prof even though I'm not a prof. But, <laughs> yeah. um, no, right, everyone loved it in the noughties because you know, everything was just alright, until the economy went bang, alright, that was a bad thing but nothing's going to be contested for the next ten years, because so Boris Johnson has got ten years of let's perpetual government falling out in front of, of him it. Everyone loved it in the noughties Well, not everyone, alright, but yeah. listen <laughs> Well, here we go I think if you, if, <laughs> if you said to a lot of voters, right, do you want to go back to the noughties, when it was all nice and quiet and you were just left alone to get on with stuff Compared to the last ten years, where you had politicians knocking on your door all the time, going Brexit, no Brexit, election, 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 and all this sort of stuff. I'm not I, I think we people want an election say, every year. Let's That's... go back to the nice quiet. No, no, times. But I
2: think you're mixing up two things. I think if you said, "Do you like the way politics was conducted in the noughties, A significant bunch of people would say no, because we ended up with parties that looked very similar to each other that weren't really engaged in an niger, that were essentially economically and socially liberal, which left a large chunk of the population out, feeling like they had no decent choice. I mean, those four million UKIP voters from 2015, for instance. and this sort of there is no alternative politics, which basically says we'll ask an expert and they'll come up with the right answer. You're we're an expert. Solace. You should yeah. be loving that. But, no, no, but, I, but experts don't need to be in favour of technocratic government. And I'm not. I think democratic concert, contestation and democratic politics are crucial because then people feel like they have a voice.
0: I'm not having this, right? We <laughs> only had, had parties that were almost the same. In 2001, when you had William Higg banging on his soapbox going on about the euro and you had Tony Blair and Gordon Brown going let's throw lots of money at the NHS you had the same party that's nonsense. We only had one party in the Northeast, That's the thing. And in the 20s, we're only going to have one party. And, and again. actually,
1: there was plenty of contest within the Labour Party. I mean, actually, the reason that um, well, the Tony versus Gordon became, you know, 11, so, yeah. became so, you know, sort of big in the sort of political debate was because that's where essentially the <laughs> you know sort of the sort of debate was yeah. about, um, you know, whether. I, mean, mean, I, what I don't want to undermine your No, no, but, but
2: I'm just saying, rubbish, you're absolutely right <laughs> about the the early 2000s. But I think as you got towards the end of that decade, and particularly after Cameron came in.
0: Well, after the economy went boom is really what you're talking about.
2: Well, Cameron came in before the economy. I know,
0: but you're talking but, uh, about after the economy. Well, went I mean, back, the, austerity, obviously, onwards, I mean really.
2: the financial crisis is obviously important, but I still think that we had a move under New Labour towards a sort of expertisation of politics. And all I'm saying is we should be careful about that. Actually, one of the things we had in the last election was a massive ideological fight. Um, and as you, as you quite rightly say... It was carried out on one side by someone who wasn't very good at all,
1: and wasn't liked, and wasn't trusted to do what he said, and that was a massive issue. You can walk and chew gum. So, I tend to think that experts in policy making is a demonstrably good thing. Yeah, and you're that arguing what, for what, less what the expertise. Labour what the Labour government no. was doing rather than just winging it. They were asking people who were um, you know, very serious figures from academia or from a particular sort of vocational area to do these weighty reviews. I think, you know, top of my head, Adair Turner, very respected public pensions. figure, did the pensions reform, which now means that everybody in this country who's employed is saving for a pension. It's going to be transformative for uh, people's um, sort of uh, sense of well-being in old age. Uh, And that was something that managerialism, technocracy, expertisation, whatever you want to call it, Delivered when there was a Labour government in place. Removing things from the
2: arena of political contestation is dangerous. When, when Tony Blair said, "You can no more stop globalisation than prevent autumn following summer, or mm-hmm. it might have been winter following autumn." That's the kind of thing I have in mind. Making politics sound like it's all preset, mm-hmm. it's all agreed. There is nothing
1: to debate here. Well then, let's. Well then, let's strip away because um, I, I think you make a good point there about globalisation specifically, and globalisation and the lack of resistance to it from, uh, on the whole, um, social democratic or left-of-centre parties, I think is one of the major causes of both Brexit and Trump. So I I think there's a lot in that. And you're right, that was about a depoliticisation. It was about um, a sort of um, a pact which said, you know, we will carry on with business as usual, Uh, the economy's growing, we'll bank the tax revenues, and we'll use that to redistribute and to uh, fund public services, which was great until the economy Mm -hmm. went belly up. But during that period... There was also incredibly important reforms that did take place Not that denied. were, you know, d- due to actually listening to experts. What, what I, you know, what I hope now in the, you know, sort of five years that we have of, of Boris Johnson, maybe longer, is that um, he um, starts to go back on what Michael goes in the referendum and listen to experts.
2: Hi, Alan here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now.
1: Do people come up to you and blame you for what's happened, what happened in 2016
0: really? and then and since?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, of course, if you have a leadership position yeah. within um, an organisation that's, um, you know, trying to uh, win a particular outcome and that doesn't happen, then uh, then people are going to have their say. At the time, um, there, were, there was a real lack of enthusiasm uh, on the Remain side of the debate. I think there were a lot of people who were very, very complacent about the result, and we saw that. Uh, in trying um, to, um, you know, to get people engaged in the campaign, to get surrogates to go and speak at town halls, there were some people who were absolutely brilliant, uh, and you know, really put their back into it. But the, you know, the, the numbers that we had on things like the People's Vote march, uh, the numbers of people who engaged after the referendum result dwarfed the numbers that we could get involved. The other thing is, that, you know, I think it is very easy, uh, and I, you know, I see this with um, with people um, criticising um, the sort of Labour leadership campaigns at the moment it is very easy to sit there from the outside uh, and say oh they only did it this way they only did it that way you know actually when you roll your sleeves up and get involved in a campaign uh, and are being presented with choices that you don't want to um, necessarily come down on either side but you you have to um, then you know I, I always have respect for people who actually are willing to go and take those decisions and to you know really sort of show that they care about an issue enough to you know dedicate pretty much all their waking hours in that period of time you know I mean people working on campaigns don't get much uh, don't get much rest don't get much of a break don't get to see their family uh, and uh, and um, you know do the best that they can for the issue that they they care about.
2: I often wondered how many of those people outside College Green that we saw for those three years actually wasted any of their time knocking on doors or campaigning during the referendum itself? It'd it'd be
1: a good question, I mean some of them undoubtedly will have done, Uh, you know, I mean there are some people... There's um, a lot of wisdom after the event though Yeah, I mean lots of the leadership in the People's Vote campaign, people like James McGrory who was the national director and some of the staff he had under him were veterans from the 2016 campaign, but I can tell you there were a lot of people uh, especially those who um, sort of purported to represent the grassroots in one way or another uh, who were not around during the referendum campaign you're being very charitable
2: here, aren't you? I mean, the Tories didn't make your life any easier, did they? No, they
1: didn't. I mean, if you're asking about sort of regrets, because you haven't asked that yet, mm. but if you're asking about regrets, then absolutely. The, um, I mean, there were um, both parties, actually. I felt that um, the Labour Party, um, to start with them, um, which takes less blame than the Conservative Party, but still takes some blame, made a fundamental mistake in opting not to be part of the formal structure of the campaign. It made our job in the campaign, particularly those of us who understood a bit more about what was taking place in some of what have become, you know, known as Leave areas, um, uh, our jobs very difficult, um, because there wasn't a counterbalance within the, you know, the strategy um, of the um, of the uh, decision making, and of course, you know, Corbyn um, became leader during the referendum campaign. Uh, he had a strong history of. Your scepticism, he sort of contorted and said in the end that he was a Remainer, but he never really put his back into it. But you don't know, you think that the
2: Scotland fear was a legitimate one? Because it struck me that no, like that was absolutely was... not. And I
1: wrote to Harriet Harman, who was acting leader, in I don't know May or June 2015, uh, before the decision had been made, to say, look, I can, I can, you, know, you could see the debate was taking place, um, but it's it's not legitimate. What happened in Scotland at that stage was the Tories had a single MP. Um, labour um, you know of course during the Scottish referendum had 40 MPs or whatever so it had a single MP um, they were very unpopular because of austerity and labour by sharing a platform with the Conservatives in Scotland um, was signaling that they were all part of the kind of Westminster elite and all the rest of it in the um, in in the UK as a whole the Conservatives were in power enjoyed you know 35 40 percent of support had a majority of MPs um, and um, the, the Labour Party you know, was sort of signalling it didn't want to be part of that kind of grown-up conversation about um, the direction of the country in relation to Europe. It also meant that operationally it wasn't able to take part in the decisions about political strategy, about where the 7 million marketing budget went about how to deploy resources around the country and it meant that you know as I say in the campaign there was a very one-sided conversation and then Mm -hmm. to compound it um, the conservatives made um, a series of mistakes in my view they made um, mistakes about just hammering away on the economy having what was a sort of very sort of rational but not emotional pitch to the electorate um, they refused to engage on the immigration issue, uh, and then there were some things that happened as well. You know, David Cameron was obviously wrapped up in the Panama Papers, which came out uh, during the campaign. Um, they, you know, basically hogged the limelight for themselves. They refused to put forward other Conservative uh, um, uh, politicians who might have presented a different sort of tone or a different, um, you know, sort of. Uh, and they endices. wouldn't
2: criticise Tory leavers.
1: Uh, and they wouldn't criticise Tory leavers. Yeah, they, you know, they would not take on, and nor would they let the campaign take on. Um, the the levers, um, uh, even though they were throwing mud at, you know, Cameron. Yeah, which was day. bizarre, wasn't it? Because it was totally bizarre. With
2: every passing day, you sort of think back to that. I mean, more and more, I think of that red bus as an anti-austerity bus. So you have, mm. you know, Tory senior conservatives basically fighting the government they were in mm. on its own record, and yet the Prime Minister wouldn't authorize anything in the way of uh, counterattack? absolutely as and we
1: had these brilliant um you know creative i saw the treatments the yeah there's a, we had the poster of um <laughs> boris johnson in nigel farage's um pocket and um number 10 refused to let us use it you know, do you spend
2: any time listening to pavements in the way that dominic Cummings apparently did <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well not enough not, <laughs> not listening
1: that to we obviously, you know, I think a lot is made of, um, of Dominic Cummings' um, sort of um, use of focus groups hmm. and research, which um, is something that, you know, obviously we did as well. And what was really striking in the summer of 2015 when um, we carried out scores of focus groups uh, around the country and, and sort of very detailed polling as well was that the, um, the, the um, sort of electorate as a whole um, could not tell you a single tangible benefit of being in the EU. Not not one. But they could tell you a lot that was wrong. So they could tell you about immigration and borders, they could tell you about the cost, they could tell you about sort of regulation and bossy Brussels. So the you know the, the sort of drip-drip effect of the mail and the express and Boris Johnson's own articles for the Telegraph all those years before. Well and David and, Cameron. Let's and be David Cameron. Cameron. Absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. You know, that had all saturated the British psyche. And you know, politicians of both Labour and Conservative had used Brussels as a convenient scapegoat. Uh, they had not tried to make a, a sort of pro-European argument. Very few people had. And, you know, as Vincent Crosby says, you can't fatten a pig on market day. We, by that stage, had sort of nine months to, um, you know, to try to sort of educate and inspire the British public on Europe. Um, and, you know, I mean, people can argue about this is the right or wrong move. The one resonant thing that the electorate did agree on was that it was risky to leave. There was a sense that it was risky for them personally, in terms of their sort of fam- family finances, but it was also a risky step, a leap in the dark, uh, for the country as a whole. And that's why there was a strategic decision taken both by the campaign and by um, the you know, sort of conservative leadership that we should focus on risk and a leap in the dark as our main argument.
2: One of the curious things about the campaign was that the Prime Minister seemed to base a lot of his strategy on the analogy of Scotland, where you started off... With a what fifty point? lead? I mean, what was it? Uh, yeah.
0: It was big, yes. It was twenty
2: five percent in favour of independence. Leave when was the, about twenty five percent. Yeah, yeah. That's on whereas, the safety first. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas in, this, in this referendum, yeah. it was it was neck and neck when you started, uh, so you couldn't
1: afford to hemorrhage. Absolutely, and we needed to have a. You know, this is why I was so keen to have Labour playing a bigger role. We needed a change narrative. Uh, in the referendum, if we were status quo, and the status quo was so bad for a lot of people, you know, still feeling the effects of the financial crisis, um, then that was going to push people into into leave hands. Um, I think what also happened, though, because you know, w- what was interesting in, in terms of, I mean, there, you know, there was um, there was some shift in the referendum campaign, but it didn't come on the Labour side. You know, we were predicting that about a third of Labour voters would vote for leave, and that's okay. exactly what yeah. what happened. On the Conservative side, in order to win. 5248. we needed about half of Conservative voters to vote for Remain. And that's roughly speaking what they were polling at in 2015. Um, but in 2016 they only got 40%. Mm. So there was a big chunk of Conservative voters that, that shifted to Leave during the campaign that yeah. in a sense were inspired by the Gove-Johnson uh, arguments and put off by the Cameron Osborne arguments.
2: We're saying that 30-odd percent of SNP voters at the time as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Possibly yeah. more than that actually. Because I, I remember having... I went up to um, Scotland a couple of times, but I had a conversation very early on with the chief executive of the uh, the SNP and a number of SNP um, MPs and uh, and MSPs, um, and um, you know they obviously were a, a pro Remain party, but um, but they explained that their coalition um, was made up of both. Um, social Democrats who wanted a kind of um, Scandinavian model for Scotland, small country, you know, making its own rules, but part of Europe, and then a kind of you know more sort of UKIP in Scotland, Scottish nationalist yeah. you know, uh, to hell with Brussels, to hell with Westminster, we want to make our own rules. So you know they had an uneasy coalition, which is why I mean obviously Sturgeon stepped up in one of the debates and did a good job, but they didn't really put their back into the ground campaign, which was another frustration in Scotland. I mean you know really in Scotland we turnout should have been I mean you know it was sixty forty which was
0: which was great. Turnout was low. Turnout was low. Right, let's finish up with the feature.
2: In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently.
0: Right, how to understand Brexit. Uh, Anand, you haven't been on for a while. What have you got and don't make it something from the UK and changing Europe?
2: The IPPR do a State of the North report. And given that everyone has suddenly, A, discovered the North and B, decided we should do something about it, it's a good read on where the North is, what the North is, uh, what needs to be done.
0: Will, what do you recommend to understand what has happened and what is happening and what is going to happen in the future? Can I have two Uh, Yes, if they're good. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) So so
1: the first thing that came into my head was the sort of Max Escher um, picture. You know, that's what it felt like over the last few years, that you were sort of like constantly trying to get somewhere and then you would end up back at the same step. And And I think actually what the general election has done is to solve a Max Escher um, sort of you know riddle puzzle um, yeah. painting, but that you know that was sort of you know what came into my head a lot over the last four years. But um, more seriously, I've actually brought along a book. I'd be interested to know whether Ooh, we could have either a of, of you know Evelyn. this British Journey by uh, Joe Heyman. No, you, since, it's so the,
2: on my file. Is it,
1: see, it? It's an no, excellent. You, uh, it is you, an, you
0: would say that. You see, I just oh. said no. I should have said oh yeah, I've got it home. I've read it yet.
1: Yeah. It's an excellent book. I a very um, big pile. Um, Joe, unlike a lot of you know obviously been a lot of analysis about the um, the referendum M- more about sort of you know chronologically what happened and were those decisions were right less about the, cons- uh, the the causes of brexit i think people like matthew goodwin have done um, some good analysis but even so it's still rather based on um, sort of polling and you know focus groups what joe did um, was actually you know went around the country to both remain and leave areas and talked to people uh, and you know that's something that politicians and campaigners uh, on left and right are doing every weekend, knocking on doors in their patch and listening to voters. So I think you know politicians, particularly those representing Leave areas, you know, had a good sense of what it was that was driving this. And Joe is one of the few writers um, that I've read, uh, maybe others out there, but who's actually taken on that task themselves and gone to try and understand what were the motivations for people in voting for Brexit. <laughs>
0: So there was Will Straw, leader of the Remain campaign, or at least one of the leaders of the Remain campaign, as he made clear there were a lot of different voices in the room which might have been part of their problem. Maybe one day we'll get the leader of the Leave campaign on this podcast, or the the one leader we haven't had on yet, which is of course Dominic Cummings. He's been invited uh, and he did reply, which apparently is unusual for him, but uh, he's yet to say yes. So. We are out of the EU very shortly. By the time you're listening to this, we might even have left the EU. Um, What a historic day that will be. Uh, Particularly for those of us who have been working on this podcast for the last few years, talking about what that means. Well, we're about to find out which bits are right and which bits are wrong about the stuff we've been suggesting over the last few years. Over that time, we have, of course, accumulated one thing in particular, and that is mugs. Mugs to give out as competition prizes. So, uh, this week's competition, given that uh, Anand has been described as uh, the Sphinx du Brexit, send us in the answer to this question. What is the answer to the riddle of the Sphinx? Not Anand, the actual Sphinx. What is the answer to the Riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, send the answer in uh, with your name and address and if you are the first person to send in the correct answer, we'll send you a special Brexit Breakdown mug. Send your entries to UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk That is the email address for the UK and the Changing Europe. You can send any thoughts, suggestions, competition entries, etc. there. You'll also find them on Twitter at ukandeu and you'll find me on Twitter too I am at Political Yeti. The music has again this week been the Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra and this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a Changing Europe supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back uh, next time for another uh, podcast where we'll be looking to the future for the UK and a Changing Europe has their What Next report out next week. That lands on Tuesday. And we'll be podcasting with some of their experts afterwards. So keep an eye out for that uh, and come back and listen to that next time. Thank you. Goodbye.